Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, it's just Q&A. That's what we're doing today. Uh, it's Saturday. Uh, we are doing testing. We may look a little odd if you're looking at us through a standard. Well, we may look a little odd either way. We are now on Saturdays. Uh, we will be testing our... Um, uh, HDR 5.1 uh, 4K, um, and we'll do that every Saturday. So um, it, we're just going to work through it. <laughs> so the information is just as good. The visuals and the audio may move around a little bit as we start to play with the uh, the process, but I felt like the only way for us to get to the next step was to do it. So we're um, we're taking that step on Saturdays uh, to, to play with it. Chris, you were going to say something. Can, can I request that my voice come from the right rear speaker? <laughs> No, no. So, so here's the deal. Once we get this rolling, I want to have I want to have a button on my. I, you know, I have these two buttons for talkback, and I want to wire them up. So while pe- while Chris is talking, I can just go. Chris is crazy, and just have it come from the right surround. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So, do you know the origin of the the word that we call gaslighting? Do you no, know? no. So there was a movie in the fifties called Gaslight. <laughs> And By the way, husband. before Chris gets into this, the, the QR code is up, and that just means you can ask questions. You can just use that QR code to throw questions in or go to askofficehours.com. Go ahead, Chris. So what you're talking about is truly gaslighting. So what the, in the plot of the movie, the husband <laughs> takes the gas lights in their apartment and uh-huh. slowly turns them down over time, but insists, no, the lights haven't changed at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> and he drives her crazy. <laughs> and that's the term that you we the- call gaslighting. The funny thing is, is that I when I um, when I used to do seminars, I used to I used to manage seminars. Um, yeah, see exactly. Um, I used to ma- manage seminars, um, lots of them. And one of the things we got good at is we would about ten minutes before. So you open doors at thirty minutes out, and you want everyone seated right when the seminar leader walks in. So we wanted to figure out how do we get people to do that without, and we wander around, ask people to take their seats, blah blah blah. But what we what we got good at was we would um, turn the music up. So we would just slowly at, it was, it was sitting at this like kind of low level background music and it was nice and inspirational, all that stuff. And then we'd start, it would start building up until about two, about eight, I'm sorry, about two minutes before the event. It, uh, it, would, be, it would be so loud that it was kind of hard to talk. You hadn't noticed it. We had just slowly turned it up very, very slowly up. But people were kind of like had to raise their voice now. And then we just cut it off. Like we just turned it off and everyone would just sit down. <laughs> it was the most amazing, like, like a social experiment, you know, of just watching it, you know, like it was like, it was a little uncomfortable. And suddenly we just created this gap that everyone filled by sitting down on the seats. I was like, oh, it's time to sit down. And the, and the, um, anyway, it was a fun, fun story from things that we try to figure out how to do in seminars. Let's go to the first question. Courtney. All right. Coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, you can use the YouTube extension from a Bard prompt at YouTube to ask Bard to help you write a speech and to pull videos into the chat. Comment. John. Bard Bard is very good. I'm getting better results out of Bard lately than ChatGPT. And Google is going to build a model off of every video on YouTube. So it's outstanding work. You know, as we prepare for some of these shows that we do, I, I ask ChatGPT to ask questions just to see what it would say. Like, I, I haven't used them in the show, but but I'm like, what would you say about this? And what would you say about that? And it feels like it, it really comes down to the prompt. If you ask, if you tell it enough information ahead of time, 
really good. It's really good at what it does. Um, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. Um, next question. The next one comes in from uh, all the way from Tromsø, Norway, and Ronnie Hofsey, where he asks about researching to get a new encoder to replace a live view solo for both studio and remote and mobile work. Uh, supports for SRT, HDR, mobile, Wi-Fi, and Ethernet connections, maybe even return video or IFB. Was hoping to get rid of any subscriptions and just buy the box. I think you can actually buy an LU800. That's that's the live view that will support the HDR and the return audio. That's the one we use for some of the shows. I don't know, especially for HDR and return audio, I don't really know what else is out there that you could use to make that actually happen. So um, I think that, that that one, if you're looking for the HDR solution, um, that might be one of your only... The other option is to have some kind of bonded cellular that you use and then you combine it with something like an elemental link. Um, that's another way to do it because it'll just, it can just use that internet connection to get out and the UHD version, which is what we're using for today's show, uh, we'll do HDR obviously because that's what we're doing now. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that's, so those, are, those might be a couple options. It wouldn't be all in the box, but you could build a box with a pep link and a, and a elemental link and those two those two pieces would work uh, well. Uh, we talked a little bit of, uh, Corey talked about the Makito. Um, Makitos are, are another solution that you can use to get, get out of there with hardware. Um, so that's another one. And then the other company to look at, and I don't know if they do HDR, but they might, is Videon. Videon uh, makes a series of boxes um, that the original link was kind of based on. So uh, so you, those, are, those are some other options to look at. Next question. Next one comes in from Andy Kokendorfer in Fiera, Florida. Uh, thoughts on the Sennheiser ME36 MZH shotgun mic? I am considering these for a boardroom, but have never used them. Thanks. Hey, Courtney. Uh, I took a look at this. It's uh, not really a high-end microphone, although it is a super cardioid, which is kind of unusual for a boardroom because you, you do want it directional, but I don't know, a, hyper, a super cardioid is a fairly narrow pattern. It's an electret condenser with an interference tube. Uh, I don't know if they have any pictures of it. It's designed to screw onto a gooseneck. Because uh, I think it has that little, uh, comes in black or, or silver. Uh, it, uh, I don't know if it has an XLR on the end of it or not, but it's, uh, like I say, an electret condenser. It's not one of their higher-end UHF, UH, uh, RF condensers. So, um, you know, Sennheiser makes good microphones. I think this pattern would be a little too sharp for using in a boardroom because then if you turn your head or you're not, it's not pointed directly at you, uh, you may be pretty far down. Uh, in level, so I'd be careful about this sharp a pattern on a, uh, a you know a boardroom microphone. Can you uh, describe for the audience what an interface interf uh, interf <laughs> interference tube is? Sure, an interference tube is. Uh, if I cut back to it here, we'll take it. Is the tube the the element uh, the microphone element? Is if you can see my cursor here is right back down about here, and all this is an empty tube all the way out here, and it has little slots in it down this, behind this little grate here, and it's just on, little slots are on one side at 90 degrees to the element. And so that uh, forms its directionality by taking uh, reflected sound that comes in at 90 degrees off axis and reduces it uh, considerably, and it gives its directionality. Uh, just and just merely the shape of the tube, the length of the tube, and the uh, size of the little slits on the side determines its directionality. So, 
Sennheiser has been using this technique for many years for their uh, hypercardioids and supercardioids uh, microphones, especially the RF condensers, the 416s, the 415s, 416s, 816s. And Those, it's pretty common. I mean, this is a pretty common way to do this for most shotguns. Oh, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Next question. Next one comes in from uh, Douglas Carmichael. It says, in music, fired most, in music, I guess that's a company, fired most of the Moog music production staff in preparation for moving most production to Taiwan. Do you think the era, era of boutique products in our industry is waning? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think uh, the interest in boutique products is probably not waning. The interest is still there, but the interest in profits <laughs> is what the problem is. Uh, it's so expensive these days to make a living and uh, create a boutique product, because then you have to charge so much for the boutique product that it, it prices itself out of the market. It's uh, Moog has been, you know, boutique made because it's such a small uh, company. You know, they've been hand assembling those Moog synthesizers for, and even when they got into the mini Moog and the, more, the higher production units, uh, they tried to uh, uh, keep it local to the United States. But now the cost of, you know, when minimum wage has been raised to 20 to $25 an hour in a lot of major, major cities, it's tough to uh, be able to hire enough help and sell those things at a reasonable price when you're handpicking all the components and uh, making it work. Uh, so off offshoring to Taiwan is one solution that to keep it from just disappearing from the market. Uh, that's a better solution than disappearing, I think. I think for software, it's never been better you know, to do something that's very specific. I think we look at our own, our, you know, our friend John Barker putting out here to record, you know, he's got this cottage business <laughs> that he's able to put together and provide a service without a lot of overhead. And I think that, that wasn't really possible before. The well, a lot, of, a lot of software he is one man. I mean, all my software that I've ever right. marketed, I've written myself and had no staff at all. So you can do it if you're, if you're really into what you're doing and uh, motivated, you know, your costs are negligible. But if, if you're hiring a whole staff of people to assemble electronic parts, uh, and also for sourcing electronic parts gets pretty difficult these days. So that might maybe while a lot of the parts are coming out of Taiwan. So that may be a reason for moving there as well. Yeah, I have to say that I, I, I was, it's unfortunate that it most all the money I used for some of the software that we wrote or we developed, I didn't, I didn't write it, um, that we developed in the 2000s in the early aughts, they were all... Uh, it was like magic, <laughs> the amount of money that came in. And the problem is we dumped it all into Pixicore. <laughs> like when we were doing training, you know, it's like office hours. So you know, there's a like, toilet right next door. No, no, we had a good time. We had it. We Let's had, put this money was, in that there. Was my boat. <laughs> but, but it was, you know, like it was a, we had a 128K program that had, um, no interaction required with the client, with the, with the customer, just like you buy it, you download it, you, we process your credit card. <laughs> it just made $30,000 a month. <laughs> like it just, it was just kind of like, doo, 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 doo. you know, just, it wasn't like a huge amount of money, but it was just like this, this, it's very constant spigot. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. <laughs> That's so, why everyone has moved to subscriptions on everything. Yeah. Even well, hardware. It wasn't subscription. It wasn't. I, it was know. Just, <laughs> I know it's just incoming new, new clients, but you, you get yeah. used to that money flow as long as you can get the new clients signing mm -hmm. up and word of mouth is spreading it. <laughs> but now everyone, even with a piece of hardware is doing, well, you 
you want to keep your hardware running? Well, you got to subscribe. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the 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 idea to have our cars. I mean, it was one thing with the tractors because there there are actually some arguments about the tractors, but but the cars, like to have your own to ha to be able to do anything with your car to have to pay a subscription, I find that to be obnoxious. Yes. Um, next next question. Next one's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the battery life like on the new iPhones 15 compared to the 14? Nigel, what do you think of the 15? Uh, so I like the 15. I have to tell you, so I will answer Paul's question, not that there is an answer at this point. Um, it does feel noticeably lighter, and it is a little smaller. It's probably almost impossible to see, um, but it is a little, a little smaller. It feels a little lighter. Um, I will tell you that you won't know the answer to the battery life question for another day or two because the first thing that happens, it downloads everything. It resyncs everything. It, in fact, it got so hot downloading stuff yesterday, it stopped charging. Uh, but that's not an unusual thing. So give us about a week and we'll answer that question. These new phones take time to settle in and get their, get their thing ready. Right. One other point. Um, I, I do not like this new case. Um, I, the, I have the woven case and I do not like it. It feels bad in my hand. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I have someone sending some, <laughs> I always get cases to look at. I haven't, um, I really love this Peak Design case. I have to say that, uh, you know, this, this one here that has, you know, this mat, I keep my wallet with it and it snaps into my car. It, you know, keep the wallet on it, and um, I've never had a time when I didn't lose my wallet. <laughs> like I've, I've always, I've always lost my wallet, and uh, now I, now I never do. Is yeah, I have one of, um, I have one of the MagSafe wallets that goes on the back of this, which is sort of why I chose the the case. Um, but it's, I understand the move away from leather. I get that. I just this new design is not nice in the hand. Right. Were the uh, cases ever made of leather, or are they mostly silicone? Is the one uh, you have silicone? I think they were leather. The old one, I am told, is leather and has a leather feel to it. So they called it leather. I paid for leather. So let's hope that uh, I got leather. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe there are cows running around the country with, um, you know, iPhone cutouts on their backs. But, but I guess, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was some sort of leather product, whether it was reconstituted. Um, but yeah. Next question. Next one comes in from Nigel Dessau, who was just speaking here in Austin, Texas. He says, is there a good iPhone app that allows it to view HDMI? Mm. And, uh, oh, there is a... Um, oh, didn't someone already bring one? We talked about this a week ago. There was an iPhone. There's an yeah. I, iPad one. It was called Orion. Orion. And it, but it doesn't work on the phone? Uh, that's very sad. I don't know if the phone does that. I don't know if it does the the HDMI in the same way that the iPad does. Uh, it should, because it would be. I mean, this, there's a Samsung phone, I think, or a Sony phone. The Sony phone does it, where it has HDMI in. I go with Samuel. Yeah, well, I I don't think the phone uh, does it, but I just saw yesterday an uh, iPhone uh, I, iPad app that actually allows this. It's called a uh, uh, Camo. Uh, and it's uh, just newly released now that uh, allows HDMI in. Uh, and I saw someone using it with the with the Road Streamer X. And what? Wait, this is out or in? This is in. And and you said it was it was camo. 
Uh, yes, Camel. Uh, I'm showing it on the screen now. I just saw it yesterday. Okay. Well, Camel's been around for a while. I just didn't know that it had an input as well as an output, but it's, it's still only. Mm, it, it's new. It's new. It's not something that's been out long. It came out this week. Well, there's been a there's another company called Camo that does a camera out. Um, iPad. I'm just, that's interesting. Yeah, because there's a there's a there's one that's called Camo that, and and who did you say made made it again? Sorry. Mm, I, I I just saw it yesterday on a YouTube video. Someone was demonstrating it. And uh, what's the URL? Apple, what's the company? Uh, I'll put it in the chat. Okay. All right. Thanks, uh, Courtney. Yeah, couldn't you just use uh, you know a typical USB to HDMI uh, dongle and a cable that goes A to A to C to have it come in as a uh, compliant webcam? There you go. Yeah, does that that doesn't work on? But it. what will I view it with? What app do I put on my iPhone to oh, view that's right. the incoming have signal? App. Yeah. Yes, that's the challenge. Well, you could use Zoom or uh, you know any of the. Yeah. software or, or can't you use doesn't it come in and substitute for the phones uh, so anything that would use the phone's camera uh, doesn't it show up as an additional camera like on my phone uh, when you you feed a uh, external video input to it you know it has the front and back uh, switch on your camera app uh, and when yeah, and this it switched is... to the back it would switch to the external one and, and to be clear, this camo app is, is is the old camo app that we've seen before. It's just that it was just released on the 18th, five days ago, for the iPad as Camo Studio with this new multi-source um, input. So, so it's the same camo that we've been talking about in the past on the iPhone. It's just that now it's available on the iPad and it has this input into it. Um, I think that the problem with, I mean, I don't think I think what we want to do is have something that's not so you know something that's really dedicated to this and i think that we'll we'll get that um i'm i'm i'll be interested to see you know like the, the kind of thing i'd love to see is of course um uh adam wilt's uh, you know colors you know like being able to take some scopes and have it on your ipad and be able to plug it in and have it feed that what you don't want to do is have it go through any kind of compression or anything else that some other app wants to do so you don't want to kind of hack it you want something that's dedicated to it i'm, I'm kind of off the look I, I really haven't delved into that very much so would the, um would the black black magic make one that because that's black basically magic could make one they're using <laughs> they for, they're using their basically video assist code to to make the camera mm -hmm. app for the iphone so they could use that same code just to switch the video to yep. the external video input and make it nice like a nice little be amazing an on iPad camera scopes. monitor yeah and with scopes or, and everything else scopes yeah. and recording yeah, yeah. Mm, there's a there's a if, if someone hasn't already done that we we missed it Someone should do that. That'd be really. That wouldn't be very hard because the you know, especially for a company that's already done, whether it's Black Magic or um, or uh, Time and Pixels, you know, or or Scope Box or someone who's already built all the scopes. I bet you moving them to the iPad wouldn't be hard. Uh, interesting. Uh, next next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Says I'm watching Matthew McConaughey talk to Lex Friedman, uh, and he's using a Rode boom arm with a SM7B. As do so many podcasters, why do so many influencers use this combo? Because they see it on TV. <laughs> they see every other podcaster <laughs> using. Uh, you can thank you can thank Mr. Rogan for this. He's the one that started using the SM7B many many moons ago, and Joe has switched now from the road arm to the OC wide arm. 
out has he? Because it's, it's I mean, it's the best. <laughs> so uh, ne- next question. Coming in from uh, CJ Corve- uh, Covell in central Pennsylvania. I picked up a Calibrite color checker passport. What's the best way to resolve, in resolve, to make a custom LUT for a Blackmagic 6K GS2? Yeah, the um, so the I think that what you want to do there is you use that calibrate and you get it. You got to get it really kind of up to the camera there, and then you um, then you capture it. And then I don't think I have anything I can show with this. I should have that example floating around. It's a great great question, but this is the this is I believe the this is the passport he's talking about. So if you're listening to this, it's this per, this one here. And and what the um, what the system is designed to do is take this one specifically and. Uh, if you draw, there's a, in the, in the down, if you go into the color window in the, in the lower part, about in the middle, you're going to see this little button that has the, for the color checkers and you can, you can find that passport on there <coughs> and then you'll corner pin it over top and you'll see all the little squares go over top of it. And then it will, um, yeah, Courtney, we can Sorry. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, the, You'll corner pin that in, and then you'll uh, uh, then that'll that'll color correct it. And then I believe that you can. I have to admit that I I, I don't use that. The, I don't build LUTs that way, but you can't. I think you could. I make I, I, the way I build LUTs is I get a person, me or somebody else, in front of it, and I build the LUT against that. So by the way, that that color checker should make your make your color correct. Um, or close to it. It's not perfect, but it's, you know, it's not as good as a colorist, but it'll get you there pretty quickly. The way I do it is I make somebody look great, you know, or I get somebody to make somebody look great like Charles. Um, so just send it to Charles, make this person look great. Um, and then what we do is I, I take a bigger color chart. You can probably use this one, but it's easier to use the chroma demand chart because of the way that the structure of the color is. But I, but you could probably do it with this color, right? I shoot another camera with that and then I, um, with the first, ca- I have the first camera, and I shoot an image. It's got to be the same lighting, same setup. Then you move the other camera in, not just the lens, and not just the camera with some the, the camera with the lens you're going to use. And you shoot that again. Then you take that image and you put it over top of the first image, and you um, uh, you, mo- you you set the top one at a, as a difference um, uh, overlay, and then you tweak the color until basically all the colors turn black and when you turn it when they all turn black then you're going to be those two cameras will look the same from that original one but i don't try to make my i mean a lot of people do try to make their cameras accurate i'm trying to make them look good and that's different in my in my eyes most of my clients and and i oftentimes want it to be a little warmer a little cooler a little whatever it is that i want the 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 show to feel like and and i find um the standard quote-unquote accurate accurate color to be um a little uh sterile, you know, and so, so I, I tend not to, I, I tend to want to have someone look a certain way or look really good as opposed to having the, the color be, be perfectly accurate, but you can use the passport to get you to a certain place and then add nodes after that. And then you should be able to, if you want to save that out as a lot. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I use the spider checker, which is a slightly bigger one. So yep. people want to do this. Um, I, I, it may seem an obvious thing, but uh, occasionally you film it upside down but it's really easy to rotate the picture in uh, Resolve <laughs> because when you when you do the mapping, the auto-mapping in Resolve to the... So if you buy one of these things, make sure you buy one that Resolve has 
the auto checking for and you line up all the little dots and you press a button it creates the the uh, color for you and then you turn that into you turn that into the lot but occasionally you have to rotate yourself because you've done it upside down <laughs> there, there's, there's, there's operational knowledge for you next question Mm-hmm. Yes, I was sorry. I was just practicing for the next question. Robert Green says, uh, speaking of subscriptions, my Hue app of Philips Hue Lights Frame is warning me to get an account. Seems like a forced subscription is coming. Thank you, Courtney. Well, it could be. You know, all these uh, online uh, Internet of Things have to communicate to a uh, host somewhere uh, to turn things on and off. And Hugh, I think, used to use a uh, used to use a smart hub of some sort, but now I think they they may be going directly to the an internet based uh, uh, account where it'll uh, sort out everything and and keep track of what's on, what's off, etc. Uh, so moving you to subscription subscription sounds like it because Hughes always Phillips has always been overpriced anyway, and so I guess they're looking for they're having trouble competing in that market with the cheaper fate and uh, all the other Chinese uh, Wi-Fi direct connect bulbs. So they may be looking as a way to increase their revenue stream. Uh, Good, uh, Nigel. Yeah, I actually heard a story the other day that I haven't checked up that actually Philips doesn't own Philips lights anymore in the same way that uh, GE doesn't own GE lights anymore. That they've, uh, they've, uh, Philips is no longer a lighting company. It's a medical devices company. Either way, uh, I will tell you that you should expect this to, to be the end result of this. There's still a fight for your uh, t- space on your device. Each one of these manufacturers is going to uh, try and do that and, and assume they will all go to to subscriptions, not because uh, of any other reason that the multiple they will get when they sell the business is higher for a subscription business than a one-time revenue business. So if you ever intend to monetize your business and sell it, you want as much recurring revenue as possible. So uh, expect products to be cheap because they will do them through, they will get the money through subscription. If they don't have subscription, the products will get more expensive. Go ahead, Chris. Hugh still sells the the Hue Bridge, and uh, my colored lights back there, that's how they work. What's interesting, when you start tying things together with, you know, in like the HomeKit world, is a lot of these different um, uh, standards or companies all have their own bridge, and then what you end up having to do is you have to attach the bridge or connect or subscribe the bridge to the HomeKit app. So, for example, I think, Alex, didn't you say you have the Akara uh, power strip? I have the Eve. Eve, okay. So, Eve is one. Akara is is a very interesting company. I have a lot of their stuff. Um, and it comes with its own hub. So, w- once you get the switches and bears on my attached to the hub, then you have to attach the hub to the home kit. I think the reason why a lot of the people in the home automation space don't use the Wi-Fi ones, Courtney, is because they tend to be unreliable and slow. So like you hit a thing and it's like, oh, and there the light switch goes. And I think that one of the things that people talk about the metric-wise is how, what is the response time? When I hit the button, does it actually happen or do I have to wait for a, like a, a bunch of communication protocols to connect and then all of a sudden see the action happen? But like the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth are, 
they're generally considered to be kind of a buzzo no-no. Like, eh, stay away from that. You want something actually that has a hub. The Acara hub has the added feature is that it has, I think I've mentioned this before, it has an IR port on it. So if you place it in the appropriate place in the room, it can run everything in your room uh, uh, that has a remote control, an infrared remote control. I use that in my mother's room so I can kind of ramp the volume down on our TV and eventually turn it off at night. So it helps her actually go to sleep, which it's not working great. I was up four times last night, but that's a whole nother story. Courtney? Yeah, one problem you run into, and I have a lot of IoT lights in this room, is, and I build the switches in, and they all have a mechanical button to turn the switch on and off. But the problem is I've got a lot of LED light strips that don't have mechanical buttons. And the problem is if they're using a web-based server to control them uh, as the interface between, let's say, the A-Lady or Google Home and the LED strip, uh, is if you lose your internet connection, you can't turn things off or on <laughs> if unless you have some type of infrared control like uh, um, Fenwick was talking about uh, you're stuck if your internet goes out but your electricity's still on you may have a lot of trouble doing anything turning anything on and off and so that's one problem and that was a, a solution that the uh, the hub uh, uh, really solved because it even if it didn't have an internet connection, you could still use the app to turn things on and off locally over the local area network. Right. But a lot of these don't have local area network control, and they have to talk to that server in the cloud. Go ahead, Samuel. Uh, well, I just wanted to comment on the Akara protocol. I have a few devices, and it uses the Zigbee uh, protocol. At least the ones that I have, and it's like a, a system, like a mesh system uh, that uh, they connect to each other instead of connecting like Wi-Fi does to the access point. Nigel? It's almost like you could make a business out of this. Um, the, the observation I would make that people who are probably new to this world is um, the more different manufacturers you buy from, the harder this is. And if you really want to do home automation, Try and find the, the supplier that does the majority of things that you want and stick with one provider. It will Each individual device may not be the best of its type, but their ability to talk to each other coherently and consistently will mean you can live in your home rather than spend your life trying to manage the technology in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know for me, you know, I, I, I've gotten a couple of Eves, even the older Eve didn't work, <laughs> stopped working. <laughs> like, like the protocols keep changing, but the, uh, the new, the newer one that I'm using right now in my studio seems to work pretty well. Um, I, I still feel like I'm, I'm going to, Chris and I are going to start, I, I know we're going to get somewhere. We're going to start doing some little podcast where we talk about it. Cause then I'll, I'll just kvitz and complain and Chris, Chris and Nigel will tell me how to make this actually work. That's what Chris well, is. And me isn't this what the matter, uh, protocol is trying to do is trying to get everybody together on the same page but does it work yeah i, I, I that's it is matter got waylaid by covid i think there's a thing called esperanzo which is a language that i think was created esperanzo, so that everybody yes. in europe could talk the same language and understand each other and they th i think it was esperanto they created have you noticed that the english still speak english and the french still speak french and the spanish <laughs> still speak spanish because uh, all of these things and matter is one is going to require 
compromise. And until this industry shakes out and there are one or two leaders left, the compromise will not happen. And you are experimenting, which is why you shouldn't rely on magic of matter. You should pick one manufacturer, make it work and be happy with what you've done. Next question. Coming in from Cape Town, South Africa, Cosmic Gajar says, Today, painting my wall in my new office, 18% gray. Not keen on background elements such as bookshelf, color lights, and other decorative elements. What is the trend today as we have morphed since uh, 3-2020? You know, I, I, I had it because I had the gray wall for a long time, and I've... now. Even even if I was even when I wasn't doing this, I painted eight. For the last twenty years, I pretty much walk into an office and I go and I, I hand the painter an eighteen percent gray card and I just go just match this gray. And it's, I've been doing the same thing for twenty years, uh, so I, I like gray. And the reason I like gray, uh, I you know, I think the color, I think. The things that I that matter to me that have color stand out more when it's in a drab environment. I know that sounds crazy, but having a nice um, basic environment means that other things make you know have the color stands out with them. And so, so that's why, like when we, we use a lot of professional apps, that you'll see that they're all dark gray, and that's so that you can see the color accurately. But more importantly, that those colors will pop out. So, so that's why we use gray. Um, I think that we've changed the background. Or I've changed the background because. I just watched other people and realized that I really liked, I felt like there was something that I had created that I had done um, because I was like, oh, well, I didn't have anywhere to, anything to put behind me. I had a window, so I didn't have anything else to put there. It was just going to be a bright, bright window. And I, um, so I put a gray wall there and I thought that it, you know, it looks nice, but I felt like when a lot of us started doing that, it felt a little sterile, like that we were all, like there was something missing. And I really feel like, there's something interesting about seeing everybody's background. So the people who didn't do that, and you know, now if I don't have something good to put behind me or I don't have short depth of field, I'd rather put gray. Like so, so I, I will say that I don't. I, I still have a gray screen and I still use it for things. Um, so I, if I don't have anywhere to go, I would definitely use gray as a background. And I think it's it's a great um, in between um, for that process. But if I, what I did here is I turned my whole studio around and I happened to have storage behind me. <laughs> so that's just, I did put a couple extra things like this little Apple, uh, cube and, and this, uh, camera as kind of interest points. I got to light them better, but, but the, um, uh, and, and Courtney's, uh, I have Courtney, oops, Courtney's scope right there. <laughs> so we still have to figure out how to turn it on. I got to make a, make a, I've given up on trying to find the power supply for it. Um, anyway, it's so it's just a cable, it's not a power supply. It's just I don't mean power supply, AC but a cable. Cord. But I can't find an AC cord that fits into it, and I'm I, and just clamping something onto it seems like it just bothers my mind. But I, I realized I could just get those little. Yeah, I could get ones that just like a little. Anyway, told on the story. So um, the uh, I uh, I think that it looks nicer with that short shorter depth of field. That background looks kind of nice. Um, you know, for a lot of different people. So, so I think that that's, and I do feel like it feels very, a little bit more homey. Like you get, you, everybody has a different feeling to it. So I, I don't think you should force it if you don't like it. And I also think the gray is really a good, a good solid option. Um, but I think, I think it's, I think both of these are infinitely better than some kind of digital blur or, or virtual background. So um, I think these are the two, I would say gray screen or something that you've kind of, thought about behind you or something you're happy with behind you is uh, are both better options. Uh, next question. 
Coming all the way in from Trinidad of the West Indies, Rian Smith asks, what are you guys' thoughts on the LiveU Studio online switcher? Yes. You know, we had LiveU on. Um, they uh, so LiveU has um, was on and talked talked a little bit about it, and and I think that we, we're going to experiment with it um, at NAB. So I'd like to. I'm going to talk to them about whether we can do a you know a special hour where we're trying to cut the whole show in that environment, just to see what it's like. So um, so expect some R and D there. I think it's a great idea, um, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll we'll do some more R and D there, and and we might even do some before NAB. To um to see what what it what it does. I've got the live view here, and uh, I think all we have to do is get a license for it. I'm sure they'll send us one. So so stay tuned. We'll we'll do some more tests. It looks it looks like a great solution for a lot of a lot of projects where you you've got some coverage. You want to add just a little bit of a little bit of cutting, a little bit of graphics, and, uh, and then output it. It looks like a great solution for that. Next question. This one comes in from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. It says, DJI wireless mic versus RODGO 2. Any thoughts or specific pluses or minuses? Samuel? Uh, well, I've used the uh, DJI mic uh, a little bit, and I've actually been quite uh, satisfied with it uh, to do like recording in the transmitter. Uh, the uh, one disadvantage I would say uh, compared to the road is probably there's uh, less uh, range and a little bit less latency or a little bit more uh, latency rather. And also if you have uh, other road devices, then you can connect them directly to the road gesture instead of that, of course, doesn't work on the DJI. Good, Courtney. I like the DJI. I think it's a little better thought out. Uh, the transmitters are a lot smaller than the Rode Go, and so they're a lot less obtrusive if you're not going to use an external microphone plugged into it. Although the new Rode Go 2 has a lav that comes, external lav that comes with it. This is a lot easier to hide with its little magnetic uh, thing. I think the Rode finally added that to theirs, a magnetic clip. Uh, and a magnet that you can hold it on and hide it underneath your clothes. Uh, this also records 32-bit float internally in the uh, microphone itself. Another thing I like about the RODGO, I mean about the uh, DJI, is the, the LED. If you're hiding this under clothes, you don't want to have LEDs that light up because then they show through the clothes. Uh, this one you can turn off or put on dim, which is what it's set on now, so it's not going to show through clothing if you're hiding it underneath clothes. Um, I like the sound of the DJI, and their DJI has really done a lot with wireless uh, transmission for their drones. Uh, they get some of the best range out of their drones than anybody out there using uh, 2.4 gigahertz uh, transmission, so I really like this, and the fact the case and the, the fact that it charges are very similar to the Road Go 2s, but I like the size of the DJI's a little better, and it, it has all the same features except for uh, the new Go 2 has time code. They call it time code. Whether it's proper time code or, or broadcast wave files with time code headers, I don't know. Nobody's uh, found that out. Maybe they're just sticking time code on the second channel and recording a, a two-channel wave file with time code as LTC on one channel rather than a proper broadcast wave file. But. Uh, We'll see how that works out. Um, a lot of people who've tested it said the time code isn't very accurate. Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, says, I apologize for asking this question again. Please demo the Blackmagic Design camera app for the iPhone. Uh, clean out and a friend has an issue with adjusting its... Uh, adjusting color to match his Sony A camera 
Match app, is there a LUT? Wants to know if there's a LUT in the... Go ahead, Nigel. So I haven't got deep enough in this yet to know the LUT. If you're not, looks like that's what it looks like. I mean, that's the back of my iPad uh, going into an HDMI in my uh, switcher. So this clearly does clean out. And then as I'm looking at the iPad, I can tell you it's, uh, it's the 28mm lens at 40 frames a second and what the shutter is. So I'm clearly looking at the, the control system in the front. Uh, I haven't checked to see whether it will take LUTs yet, but if it does, then I think Alex described a process earlier of uh, how you match two different things, and that would be the process that I would use. But I, I'd need to check to see if I could actually change the LUT on the, uh, on the iPad or the phone. Yeah, and I can confirm that that it is. Um, this is uh, let's see, a, a keyboard that needs to be cleaned, obviously. Um, but that that is the raw out of the of the uh, of the phone. And there is, I actually don't know how to show. The new thing will be is I don't understand exactly how to show the interface if I wanted to. <laughs> like I couldn't show you the interface to show you how to do how to do the light. But at the um, um, let's see, at the bottom. I'm trying to see here the uh, uh, let's see there's there's a way to I'm just trying to look through there's a there is a LUT button on it and you can load LUTs the, the one thing I don't know is whether let's see here I can change um, turn it off I can definitely change the I can change the white balance the the what I'm not certain of here is whether the LUT when you record it is um, let's see here. Yeah, we'll do some more research on that. I, I, what I don't know is, is whether the LUT is, oh, display LUT. Okay, display LUT. There we go. LUT selection. No, I have to load a LUT. Yeah, so you go into LUTs under settings and it has, you can display the LUT or not display the LUT. And I think that that'll affect the, the overall. Yeah, I just found it. You, it's uh, in the, in the, you press the wheel, which yep. again, I can't demonstrate. You go to LUTs, you display LUT and then put LUT selection and it allows you to load a LUT from there. And you have to you have to load those LUTs into your iCloud or into right. your phone, into the yeah. folder in your phone that it's created. Yeah. And then you'll be able to um, you'll be able to load those LUTs in. So so that's there's the, actually a folder on my iPhone called LUT and Media that comes with this app. So if you plug it into your Mac or something, you should be able to copy it into the LUT file. Yeah. Chris? Oh, can't hear you, Chris. Under settings, monitor, if you turn off the HDMI clean feed, which I believe is by default turned on, does that allow you to see the the UI? Wait, say that again. So go into settings on the Blackmagic camera, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. scroll down about halfway to the monitor subsection, and by default, I believe the HDMI clean feed is oh, switched yeah. on. If you turn that off, does it allow us to see the UI? Yeah. Because I would think the opposite of clean feed would be dirty feed, which would well, some... it no, no, it does not. Let's see, does it oh. give you no signal at all? No, it gives you. It just keeps giving you the signal, but the what what goes out of the yeah. I can tell you all of these things crashed the app on the iPad. <laughs> the menu structure does not. If you try and do any of these things right. we're talking about on the iPad app, it'll crash. I will say that the, you know, it's going to take a little bit to get used to it, but the interface on the on the iPhone is pretty, pretty amazing. 
It's a pretty, pretty nice one. Go ahead, Courtney. One question. Do you use this uh, standard uh, USB-C to HDMI dongle that you use with an iPad? Works fine, or do you have to get a special cable? Uh, I, don't, I think Nigel would know. Are you using just the USB-C to I have HDMI? a Satachi dock, and it's just... And the Satachi, the iPad connects to the Satachi dock. It sits in front of me, mm. and that's got an HDMI cable in the back of it. Uh, but what about have... the phone, the clean-out on the phone? Uh, do you use the same dock with your phone? I haven't tried it yet. I will try it and let you know. On my phone, I'm just using a... Uh, this is, I'm still... I haven't got my 15 yet. So um, I'm using Lightning to HDMI. It works, works fine. Okay. Um, next question. Coming in from uh, Eric Herz in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Thoughts about the bird dog pod, whatever that is. The bird dog pod. This must be must be new. Because uh, we haven't heard of it before, so um, this is a. Um, I will say, I I, I want to <laughs> apologize for saying, hey, it is good, useful to go ahead and put links in your questions. I'm not sure we we might have said. I think we've said in the past it's hard for us to get to stuff, but it's even harder when we don't have a link. So um, definitely feel, uh, feel. Oh, I think they actually came on and talked about the pod. Um, this is a. Um, this is NDI to US. Yeah, so the pod. Uh, I believe Bird Dog came on when they came on. It was it was just coming out. So this is a you can have NDI and then it'll show up as a webcam for your whatever you're doing. So that you, if you have an NDI system, um, you would um, this will c plug into your computer and act like a webcam um, to, so that you could. Um, uh, and what would be interesting is the test that would be fun to do with this is because the iPad is supposed to be able to see the new iPad with iOS 17 should be able to see webcams. Theoretically, you could use this little pod with your iPad to connect NDI to your iPad. <laughs> so you could just pass it into that as a webcam, potentially being able to use it for productions um, like uh, Instagram. But that's the part we we don't know yet is whether those external ones will show up in Instagram through the iPad. Um, but uh, it, I think that the only question for me is how much latency you'll have. NDI has a little bit of latency. The conversion will have a little bit of latency. And I'm not sure if that might that little bit of latency might add up to a lot of latency. So that, that'd be my only concern. Next question. Uh, comes in from Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Off the previous question, any Android apps with HDMI input and scopes? Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. <laughs> I haven't tried any, but the problem with a, a with an app uh, with scopes, it's got to get video in unless you're going to do scopes on the internal cameras in Android. Um, I imagine there are some out there that uh, take an external uh, video input for like a tablet or for uh, Android TV maybe. Uh, but uh, I haven't tried any uh, offhand. Uh, it's because that's such an esoteric thing because you have to get video into it from HDMI or some other source. Uh, and, you know, it's really designed for output Android rather than for consumption rather than input and control. So I doubt there are very many apps out there that would do this. Next question. Uh, from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Any objections to using the HAA UTAP or SonnetBox-based USB-C capture devices? No. We use the SonnetBox. So we use the SonnetBox with Blackmagic um, to capture stuff all the time. So that's not that works perfectly well. Um, AJA uh, UTAPs are really, really useful little devices, and they, they work well. So, yeah, I think both of the no, no, uh, uh, no objections there from, from us. Uh, next question.
from uh, Kenan Campbell in Nevada, USA. As I work on the portable version of our router in a backpack, we are incorporating a V-mount for power. What is everyone's preferred V-mount battery? Should we include a battery with the backpack? Good, John. Uh, there's all kinds of stories of V-mounts falling off. You might want to consider a gold mount instead of a V-mount. I don't know, Alex. What, do you, what are your thoughts? I have to admit, I use V-mounts all the time, and you know, I, I, I think that the stories of them falling off are a little overblown. Um, I will say, industry standard is gold mounts. So the Anton Bauer gold mounts are the industry standard, and they will stay in. They're they're locked in a lot better. I find that the V-mount is easier to get out, <laughs> so, which is what everyone's worried about. Um, if you hit the switch, the V-mount's definitely going to come off. I've never, if I've seated it properly, I've never had a V-mount pop off, knock on wood. Uh, I've never had it pop off anything that I've been working on, but I don't really put it under a lot of stress either. So um, I, I, I like I like them. I, I have to admit the ones that I have are the, uh, there's a lot of different ones um, that, are, that are out there. So you have to decide which one. Blue Condor makes their own line of them. Um, there's also uh, a variety of ones that you can get that are pretty, have a lot of power in them. I tend to buy 99 um, watt, you know, whatever, what do they call them? MAA, you know, watt hours or whatever, because you have to be under a hundred to fly. So, um, so just make sure that you're going under a hundred. Now, the ones I use are the small rig ones. I find that the small rig ones are make, you know, I, I, I they're relatively really compact. Uh, they're a little out of my reach right now. Um, but I have three of these small rig, um, ones that are, that we use. Um, we've been slowly buying them for the, event coverage that we get. So I get, I keep on getting more. The event coverage for me is always when we buy a lot of gear for, to, to try to figure out how to do this better. Um, so the small rig uh, ones have a digital output. Just tells you what everything is that's going out on the back of it. It also has um, two barrels, one at, I think, 9 volt and one at 12 volt. It has a USB-C and USB-A output as well, as well as a DTAP. And then if you take the, um, if you take the mount that it comes with, the V-mount that it's designed to go on, that's a holder for it that's designed to go on rails, you get a whole other set of outputs. Those two combined, I find it is really nice to provide a lot of things with power from one battery. Um, and then and then that battery, it's a little bit cumbersome to swap the battery because you have to swap out all those cables. Um, but it is a nice, um, there's some, it's a real nice convenience there. So those are the ones that I've been using. Uh, I, you know, I don't think that they're necessarily, there's ones that have a lot more capacity, but for the price and convenience at, and under a hundred um, uh, watt hours or whatever, I, I think that the, the, uh, the small rig ones are really, really convenient. Uh, next question. This one comes in from Carlsbad, California, and Chris Taylor. Recommendations for a one-person vocals, one instrument at a time, simple digital audio workstation recording studio devices. Courtney? Well, if you're just looking for an interface and you have your own, uh, you know, Pro Tools or other digital audio workstation, we we talked about this yesterday or day before yesterday. The Shure has this new MVXU XLR to USB, and it has phantom power, so you can plug in any dynamic or phantom-powered microphone. It gives you local uh, feedback over the headphones with zero latency, so you can hear yourself uh, as you're recording. Of course, this would just be a single microphone. Oops, sorry. 
mounts uh, into your workstation, but you could use probably multiples of these on the same USB bus and bring them in as separate um, uh, inputs into your digital audio workstation and record. It has 60 dBs of gain, 60 dB of gain, which is pretty good for the dynamic microphones uh, with fairly low noise. So I take a look at that, but at that price, 129 bucks, you're getting into the range of the of the small four input mixer or you know standard uh, a little higher end USB interfaces that are designed for podcasters. So, yeah, I I still would look at at something that's a multi track recorder. I mean, especially if you're doing this on your own, uh, you want it to be a DAW interface, but you may want to look at. Uh, a lot of musicians do use the Scarlets. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a hate-hate relationship. Some people have a love-hate relationship with the Scarlets, and I have a hate-hate relationship with the Scarlets. But I think that there's a lot of musicians that swear by them, and they seem to figure out how to get music out of them. So, um, so Focusrite makes the Scarlet line. The higher-end Focusrites, um, you know, are probably a little bit higher quality. And you, you know, when you pass the Scarlet line, um, you might be able to find better interfaces there. Um, so those are those are some relatively simple ones, two-channel uh, inputs. You know, if, if I was going to do it, I'd still figure out how to save money and get a something like a Mix Pre Three because you have you have those inputs, but you can do it anywhere. And thirty-two bit float. Also, look at the F line, F series line from Zoom, which is less expensive and still have that thirty-two bit and be an interface. But being able to record anywhere and and being able to record double record into the into the device, I think, is useful. As I. If I was trying to record something that mattered, maybe you're just, you know, playing, but if you, if I tried to record something that mattered, I would try to have a device that can re record it, not just go as an input into the DAW. There's a lot of things that can go wrong between the device and the DAW. So, um, you know, if, especially if you're only doing a handful of channels. If you're doing a lot of channels, there's a, some arguments against that. But if you're doing just two channels, I would I would really think about something that's capable of recording locally. The only concern I would have with... Um, uh, the sure, which uh, just arrived, it's in the other room. <laughs> I got that sure that Courtney was talking about because I want to test it for. Um, I need to test it for some of our mics. The um, the what I want to do with that sure, by the way, is to put it on the end of our some of our headset mics, and so I have this nice little little, little tug, and then you put it in. I think it could be really useful for us. So we're gonna test that out. Um, anyway, but the um, uh, the. The concern I really have is just dynamic range. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're singing, uh, just making sure that you're not going to overdrive it. It's, it's a very small, and there's not a lot of complex components. The advantage of some of the other ones with 30, 32 bit float and so on and so forth is that by yourself, if you don't get the settings right, they're pretty forgiving. Next question. This one comes from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Can the panel share their thoughts on the use of iOS 17 on older? iPhones. Nigel? I can only share back N minus 1 to the uh, 14 in it. I've had 7 on since the early beta. Found it very stable. It's probably the most stable of the betas I, I've used or betas that I've used. Uh, I don't use any particular complicated apps. Uh, there's always things that uh, minor features that look different, but it's been pretty stable on the 14. Chris? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Um, I'm using a dusty old 14 and probably will. Uh, I'm going to skip the 15, you know, for financial reasons, but because um, I think it's the smart thing to do, skip skip a generation. Uh, but so far, it's working great. Uh, I haven't tried putting on anything older. Yeah, I've, I've had the 17. I think that you'll probably find that the 17 will work just fine from about 12 or 11 or 12 up. It probably will be a little chunky on ones that are older than that. Um, next question. 
From Douglas Carmichael, what would be the most intuitive tool on macOS for creating USDZ objects? Would Blender be a solid choice for a 3D novice? Yeah, I, I think that you want to look at intuitive versus uh, intuitive versus inexpensive. Blender is going to be the least expensive. It's not as intuitive as some of the other ones, in my opinion. The most intuitive, for the, and also you're talking about building the models and texturing the models. To build a USD model, USDZ model, I think Blender's fine. I think you could build it there. Um, you, I, I use Cinema 4D because I've been using it for a long time. Um, but those are the two um, the two apps I probably look at for for do, building the geometry itself. For texturing it, Adobe Substance is the right way to go. It's a little expensive. It's going to be a it's a subscription. You know, it's it's Adobe, um, and um, but it's a it is Substance is the most intuitive way to um, actually put the textures on. So usually we move things in there and we start applying textures or we do textures and we process it through substance. Um, and so that is, it, it produces some really um, good looking things um, there that you can then um, export out as a USDZ. The substance export, I don't know if it's gotten better. I haven't used it for a couple months, but the last time I used it, you export it out and it like creates a USDZ file, but you have to export like all the textures out and it just builds this big folder of stuff you don't need, and then you get one little model that is the USDZ. So hopefully they make that that they've made that a little bit better in the last couple of months. So anyway, um, but uh, it it's probably the best one to use for that. And I do think that um, you know it's unfortunate. A couple of us, uh, some people maybe watching today, I talked about it about two years ago. Going, Apple's going to add this to Keynote and Pages and Numbers, and it's going to be a big business. And um, the uh, um, and it just didn't, uh, I said, you know, we should be building basic models like school thing models and tech and corporate models and fun models and things that you would use in your, in your uh, devices because people will buy them. You know, people will get Keynote and they'll go, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, th this has got a whole collection of 25 models of, of you know, that you would use for schoolwork or, or corporate or whatever. And, um, yeah, no one built them. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this is going to be. I don't have time to do it, but someone should. And we never built them. And uh, now there's a real opportunity right now to model, to build some models and sell them because I think people will. They won't pay what they would used to pay, which is a couple hundred dollars a a pop. Um, they uh, they but but if you had a, a twenty five objects that you would use for ten bucks or whatever, it's pretty good business for somebody. Uh, next question. From Keenan Campbell in uh, Nevada, or Nevada, USA, can we do a lab on USDZ in Keynote, Alex? Seems to be a huge feature for the future of easy model visualization. Yeah, um, we, we definitely can. We, we'll do it next week. I, 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 let me look at my schedule. We'll get it into the schedule. So, so watch the emails, and I'll put it in the schedule somewhere. I, I'll find out where, because I think it's important for us to jump on this. It, it is going to be, there's not, I don't, I mean, we'll do a little lab, I don't know how much there is to lab out only because the, it is, um, let me see if I can pull it up. It's pretty simple. Like it's not a, um, we have a little time here today. If I can, if I can find my keynote, where is it? Hold on. Um, the, uh, let me just open this up real quick here. Um, the, let's pull this up. Here we go. It's a it's really powerful, and you know there's not, the the thing is is that in typical Apple form there's not much to lab out, so um, you know the you know once you have an object, uh, so once you have this object here, I mean when you when you look at it here the 
um, when I select it, all there is that, that I can do is I can, I grab this and rotate it around to where I want. Um, and then I, uh, and then I can move it. And so it acts like a 2d object when you grab onto it anywhere other than where it is rotating. Now, the, the thing is, is if you want to animate that, and then you have some control here. So you have style here, you have opacity, so you can make it, you know, play with the opacity there. Um, I don't know why you give it a title. Well, I guess you put a title over top, but that's cute. Um, anyway, so um, the the one thing I haven't done yet, which I'll figure out for the, um, uh, what I'm going to figure out here is I believe that this embedded animation is very similar to what Courtney had shown the other day with the little wasp is that you can put animations into it. So it could be flapping or doing something else um, in, in there. And so we're going to play with that. That's the one unknown um, here is what that would look like. Now, this is your, um, you can reset the rotation. That's the, that's the base rotation there. And you can see that that will change as I, as I move it around. Um, but you can type those numbers in if you want to get them to be just right um, as, as you go through there. Now, the way to animate it is simply that you will, um, it's a magic move. So if you look at what I've done here, when I, when I hit play, now the first thing that happens is I just had a pop up. That's a 2d pop. That's not, there's nothing 3d there. When I click on it again, that is simply a magic move. So basically to do that, um, what you're doing is you're taking this object and I'll just copy and paste it. All I do is, is this, you'll see, you'll see this little blue corner here. And that means that if I go into, um, animate, you see magic move here. And um, I can change it. I can do, uh, I think I can do these other ones as well, but I'm using magic move right now. And so I can say how, how, how much do I want to go? How long do I want to take to go from one to the other? But if I go to the second slide and I grab onto this and I rotate it to where I want it, let's just say there, and I can also, you know, scale it, you know, I can uh, scale it up like this. I can move this over here, you know, whatever. I can scale it. I can, and it's going to find the way it's going to do it. Like you don't get to, you know, I'm used to having control. So here you just hit play. And then when I click on it, you'll see it just does that animation. And, it, and it's adding ease in, ease out um, to it. So you don't, you don't have to. Um, I believe that there's a, um, yeah, it does, you know, there's ease in, ease out. You can just ease in, you can just ease out. You can have none. Um, so those are, those are the options there, but that's how you're animating those. And then what I'm showing, what I showed here in this little demo that I did, and I'm probably gonna do another video because a bunch of people have asked me, like actually walk through how you did this, um, or do it. But this is just, these are just 2D, you know, th those are animations that already existed. This is what we call, if you look at it here, this is a dissolve and this is a, I drew a line and it's called line draw. Um, so those two things are just stuff that's already built into it. And so so that's 2D over top of the 3D. And I think that, uh, Keenan, you're right. The reason I've been excited about this is because I think that it is a, uh, it's going to be a big deal. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, that, and and I, uh, and, and by the way, I was thinking about one of the, Courtney has talked about, like, it's been in PowerPoint for five years. Why hasn't it? I, I have a feeling I was talking to someone about it yesterday. And and I said it's been in, it's been in in PowerPoint um, for five years. There, yeah, so this is this is what you can do. So Courtney's showing you you know the more advanced version of this um, that's already been again as Courtney said already been in uh, in PowerPoint for five years. And I I asked someone that's been doing PowerPoint for a long time why did it not take off? And his response was really interesting. He said uh, four by three. I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, he said, PowerPoint was four by three for a long time. So anything they related, opened it up, it was always in this old four by three format. And it, you had to do this stuff to get it to go to 16 by nine. And, and he goes, and so everyone kept on doing four by three. 
it always looked like, you know, so none of us who did and did stuff wanted to use it. And, and we were the only ones that would put 3D into it. And he said, Keynote had 16 by nine a lot earlier on. Then it was just a weird, it was a weird, uh, I, I hadn't thought of that, that angle, but he, he does a lot of stuff for corporate presentations. And, and he just said, you know, it was like everything was broken from PowerPoint. So we just didn't take anything they did seriously because they were in a four by three format instead of 16 by nine. And it was a pain that we had to well, fix. You just it. have to set your stage size. and But they would get all of their, the big thing was, is they would get all of their presentations from all their corporate partners in four by three. So they didn't spend any default, time trying to. Yeah, nobody ever changed the default. Yeah. And so he said the default was devastating. Like it was just, you know, because they had to rebuild everything all the time. So all they thought about was how to get it out of PowerPoint. And so no one who does any graphics work was using PowerPoint. And he said that was the, that was the, that was the, what kept it. Probably we were the ones that would have used 3D, but we didn't care because we were just trying to get it out of PowerPoint. Um, and into, because up until only a couple of years ago, everything you saw in a corporate event was keynote. Like we just, we would say, hey, we're going to conform, what we call it is conforming for presentation. And what that meant was we're going to take your Google slides or your PowerPoint, we're going to put it into Keynote. And because Keynote's um, animations and stuff like that uh, play back better. You know, they, they just, they, they tend not to hiccup as much. Um, and so that was the, that was the bottom line. And so no one really, if it didn't exist in Keynote, they weren't using it in corporate presentations because they, uh, because they didn't consider PowerPoint and Google Slides as, except for Microsoft and Google, which by the way, might've been using Keynote for their presentations until only a couple of years ago when someone executive realized what was happening. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they, I'm sure they were probably using Keynote in those corporate demonstrations. Yeah, uh, yeah I've done a lot of Disney stuff and they're all using uh, Keynote, have been for years. Mm -hmm. The uh, I wonder uh, if you have a PowerPoint presentation, you know, you have the conversion to import uh, PowerPoint into Keynote. It's kind of a disaster. To the conversion, I it's going to support uh, USDZ. Oh yeah, you know, three D animations coming from PowerPoint into uh, Keynote. I doubt it, but it'd be cool. I mean, there's a lot of things that Keynote doesn't support that that you can never take a Keynote, like a real Keynote document, sent to PowerPoint. Yeah, that's really hard. Going the other way, mess. Apple does not want you to do that. Well, so it's just that it's just that we have so many animations and so many tools that don't exist anywhere else that that you couldn't really send it somewhere else. But but bringing like the easiest one to bring in is Slides. Slides has so few features that Slides is actually really easy to relatively easy to get into Keynote. Uh, the ones that the ones that kill you are PowerPoint users that are really good at PowerPoint and they've built all these things, all these little special things into it. And when you get it and you try to put it into Keynote, it's a disaster because all those none of that stuff works. <laughs> so so we always just hope we always tell people just lay it out and in PowerPoint and then we'll conform it and we'll talk about the animations. And so we try to, like, let's not do that. Go ahead, Nigel. I was just going to uh, join in the 16 by 9, 4 by 3 debate in corporate environments. Um, I discovered what I had to do was not issue the corporate template in 4 by 3. Only issued the corporate te oh, yeah. template in 16 by 9. And that then drove that change in PowerPoint. And yeah. then you have to be really strict with people when they use old templates to, to fix that because that's what perpetuates the backwards nature of, of, of PowerPoint in most corporations. I, I, I find that, you know, just a s subtle doses of shame and ridicule work really well. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it's like there's someone posted for a long time when we were trying to kill it off in a couple of corporations. We, we, it, it wouldn't be during the show when the person's present presenting it, but they're always like, "Oh my god, four by three. <laughs> like we would just say that, just just like like a little like the slight geek, and 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 it, it it was a really good poison where you didn't say a lot, you just said that. Um, and you let you'd say it loud enough while someone's walking by that there's a whole thing that you probably don't like when the when when executives are walking by you have this real opportunity to talk to each other but loud enough that they can hear it without actually talking to them and you'll be like oh, I got four by three I'm I'm so corporate like as they walk by and I hate hearing that and so it it just kind of drops the poison in as it goes by go ahead Chris you mentioned did you mention that. Google was using Keynote until they tell us. I can neither confirm or deny that. Okay. So, yeah. real quickly, if you don't mind. And late, they definitely don't now. They definitely use slides for the last, I don't know, five years. So, late 90s, I was doing a com dat, I was doing a show in Chicago. A friend of mine was running audio at the giant Microsoft booth, big booth. And he goes, Hey, you want to see a tour? And the, the, the interior of their booth had a ceiling. And air conditioning. So all the and they had about about ten racks of gear in the back. And he goes, "Hey, you want to see something really cool?" And he takes me to the very last rack on the very bottom shelf. And this is late '90s. It, there was a Mac Two CX or CI or something. And I said, "What's that doing?" And he goes, "It's running all the software demos." I go, <laughs> "What?" And he says. They don't show software in the booth. I go, what are they doing? And he goes, they click, and the next chapter of a laser disc plays, and they they finger sync it. You know, lip sync. They finger sync. Oh, so let's let, let's enter in a, a name here into our database. Click. All right. The whole booth was run by one Mac. Which is way. There was like <laughs> there was like five theaters around the perimeter of the booth. It's pretty funny. Yeah, the uh, uh, the one that we thought was uh, really fun was that there was a in the '90s there was an animation of the chip going through and it was Intel inside, you know, do 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 do, and it was like it would fly through this board and then flip up and then land inside of the inside of the circuit board, and that was all animated in electric image. Um, which is only runs on a Mac. <laughs> it used to be in their demo reel, <laughs> like it would just show it. Oh yeah. Anyway, next question. Coming in from Greg McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. When Apple releases the 3D video capture, do you expect a standard format or something new? We expect the MPEG MV format. So that's what we're, it says coming soon, I think because they're still figuring it out. Um, but but the MV, uh, uh, it's the MPEG MV or HAV, I'm sorry, HEVC MV is the, is, the, um, is the format. And it's been around since like 2015 and Apple talked about it at WWC. And what it does is it has a, a hero eye, which is typically the left eye, and then the de the right eye is a delta of the left eye. Um, and what that allows for is it'll deliver it'll deliver the user a uh, 2D. If you don't have a device that can see it, you're just going to get a straight 2D um, image. And if you have a device that can see it, you'll see the the the, the second or the third dimension, the stereo, not not really 3D, but stereo. Um, and so that's probably the way that they're going to process that. Um, I actually don't like it as much as the way that the hydrogen does it, which is the the hydrogen that I have somewhere here. I was just charging it so I could play with it a little bit. I was like, on, you know, while I'm waiting for my other phone. 
Um, but this this hydrogen um, had it had this. I think maybe five. I said five years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Um, this is the red uh, camera, and if you look at it really closely, um, you'll see that it's got two you know stereo lenses about the same distance apart as the as the Apple um, as the Apple one. So um, so that and it works well. It, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. Now this one just shot I think two two different video files that were then played back at the same time. Um, anyway, so that's, there you go. Next question. From Annie Hofsey in uh, Tromso, Norway. Can we ask our friends at Zoom to add selectors for audio input and output on iOS and iPadOS so that we can have some more manual control on how to route audio in and out of Zoom? Yeah, that'd be great. Let's 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 make that request. Let's let's. Oh, so my my big plan is to wait until Zoomtopia to see what actually comes out, which is only another you know week and a half away or whatever. Uh, let's just wait and see what Ag's actually released, and then we're going to line up a bunch of requests for Zoom of things we, that didn't show up, um, and uh, or and and things that uh, were promised last year that we still haven't seen, like double end recording. Not that I'm bitter, um, and uh, and so uh, we'll and then we'll push a lot of requests in to see if we can't get some attention. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, what mics would be best for a piano in a church setting? Could a PZM work or would a clip mic like a pair of DPA 4099s give a richer sound? My background is with synths, so this is new to me. Yeah, I would I would ask that on a Wednesday when we have some of the more of the music folks in. I know that Jeff Francis has done a lot of that, and you could probably ask in the audio Discord. I don't think we have anyone here that's had to do a lot of um, miking of of of, uh, of uh, pianos. Go ahead, uh, Samuel. Well, I definitely haven't done a lot of making of pianos, but I would say uh, if you're uh, going to just record it, then I would look at a large uh, a diaphragm condenser mic at the high end of the piano. Uh, because, uh, if you have two, then maybe you have one at each side, uh, I would say. And then uh, so, and if you, uh, what you have to be careful about is feedback. If you're doing a live situation, you have to be careful with feedback. Chris, are you going to add anything? Yeah, uh, I would. Um, the thing about mic and pianos is you you don't use a mic on a piano. You use multiple mics on a piano. And in a live situation, you have to look at the um, stage presence and what your stage is like. If you have a very loud stage and you're doing, and, and also, of course, grand, grand piano or an upright, um, a grand piano on a loud stage, although it will not sound as good in the full mix, uh, what Samuel just said, it won't feed back if you close the lid when you mic it. It's not going to sound as good, but it, ha but it has a certain amount of isolation. The best way to mic a piano is with the lid open, and but mics both close and far, but you can't do that on a stage. I think we mentioned this uh, just this last week. The real thing to do is to get them a, a, a great but relatively inexpensive um, full velocity sensitive weighted uh, keyboard controller and let them play you know, a, some of the great MIDI sounds that are already sampled. Uh, you know, if you open up Apple Logic, you can play a Yamaha C7 or a Bosendorfer with a with a good controller, and it's going to sound 
fantastic. Next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts, any recommendation for a portable speaker to enhance a yoga teacher's voice from the back of the room? Uh, battery powered, three and a half, three point five millimeter uh, tip ring sleeve uh, jack in. You know, there's a lot of options here. The ones that, that are probably the, the, the most obvious options would be things like the JBL Extreme Two. Um, there's a there's a lot of them in that kind of pill size. The one that that I've used that I have that I carry around in my car so that if we go out to the beach or something like that we want some music is something that's relatively inexpensive which is a um it's this uh, w king or w king portable loud bluetooth speaker with subwoofer um it it actually has a pretty good um it's 90 bucks and it has a pretty good bass and um for like taking it out by the pool or or taking it somewhere or whatever. It's it's a great little one. Um, I that's the one I have. It's got a USB C plug. It takes Bluetooth and pairs really easily. It's got it's got uh, TRS um, into it. So um, that's a that's that's been a good one for me. Um, and I, I admit that I I'm, I say TRS. I I'm, yeah, it has an auxiliary. Yeah. So there you go. Next question. Next one in uh, comes from. There we go. Juan C. Robles. Uh, in Mexico, he says an embedded animation option uh, in Keynote triggers the USDC embedded animation, if it has one. It plays once, and I didn't find a way to control when it plays from the Keynote animations options, or when it plays from the Keynote animation options. Yeah, I think that it may be one of those things that it can play when you go to the, like you would use the magic move again to go from one slide to the other, and it would just do it. Uh, so I think that that's, I, again, I think that the tools have been purposefully kept very simple to get started. Like, so we, you can turn it on and there's not many ways to do it. I have a feeling that we will slowly see more and more tools being added to this puzzle. And I think the other thing that's going to be really interesting with, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about Keynote a lot, but what is also going to be interesting is how it integrates with pages and specifically how it integrates with pages when you select it eventually I think you're going to be able to select these in pages and it's going to pop out onto your table, you know, using AR with your phone, you know, you just suddenly see that object and move around it. And so I think that what we're seeing right now is, is still the very basic version of this, but it's going to get a lot more interesting as we move forward. Go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, a phone call came in. I was muting the phone. Uh, yeah, I wondered if uh, if there's a setting for a loop so that you can set the animation, as long as it's not a translation animation where it's moving from one place of the screen to the other, if it's just, you know, like the like the uh, little bee flapping his wings or something could be set to loop so that the animation doesn't stop. So as long as you're on it, it keeps repeating. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it doesn't doesn't seem to have a loop right now so we'll 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 see if it um we'll we'll have to see how it works you know like i think that again i think there's going to be a lot of room for us to make requests and i think that apple probably has thought this out of where they're going to go i think that what they did is they just put something out that's relatively simple let us start to play with it and i think we'll probably see start see regular updates to this over the next six months to a year um so but there's no loop that i see right now but we're going to play with it and see uh next question Coming in from uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Alexa will create a digital floor plan of your house using your phone and map view will display all the devices you add to it. Rather than using Alexa or another app to manage a device, you can see its location in your home and tap on it. Discuss. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Well, uh, the whole idea behind Alexa is it's hands-free. You know, you talk to it, and uh, it the nearest one receives you and talks back to you. Sometimes the one in the other room hears you better and talks back to you. Uh, but the whole idea of having to get out of your phone and bring up an app and find the right room in the app and tap on it before you, you control it kind of defeats the purpose of the voice activation, doesn't it? So I don't see this as a real feature. It just sounds like just another gimmick to say, hey, we do something different. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Avid has introduced nonlinear clip-based production to Pro Tools with Pro Tools Sketch. Is this a Me Too product or a true innovation on the Pro Tools platform? And he has a link there. We don't know. Yeah. Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Bueller. I was like, I don't know. I, uh, I think is, it that, an, again, is it an AI the, uh, type thing? No. Yeah, I will say that on Saturdays, uh, you know, you, we're probably, you know, we're, we're having a good time with more general questions, but uh, we're getting more and more into these certain days that people are showing up for really like this is brand new in audio or this is brand new in, in something else. I mean, a lot of us can answer a lot of questions, but if you're talking about something that's brand new or something that's really deep, I really would take your audio questions and wait until Wednesday for the Wednesday for the, for that, for that one, for the audio group. And we're going to keep on starting to slowly push that more a little bit uh, as we have more specialists showing up in those, in those certain areas. But I don't, uh, you know, anything that's brand new in audio may not be a Saturday morning discussion. Uh, next question. From uh, Craig McFarlane in Boston, how accurate is the uh, depiction of the control room in Apple's The Morning Show? Uh, I've only seen it in passing, and I actually think that it's actually relatively, um, uh, you know, it's they're all different. <laughs> I guess that's what I would say is that they're all they are all um, a uh, um, uh, they're all a little bit different as far as how that how that how they look. Um, a lot of them look very much like that. So, um, so that, so I think that that's, uh, um, yeah, I, I would, I would consider them it's accurate enough. Uh, I've been in a lot of them. I don't, I've never seen a control room that all look exactly the same. You know, like they, I've never, I've never seen all of the, you know, they, they have similar things. So the things that you can kind of count on is that you're going to see a bunch of desks with a bunch of turrets that go down into it where they have stuff that's the comms and everything else in front of them. See a bunch of monitors on a wall that are usually held up with 8020. You're going to see a bunch of other things like that, but that's, those are the things that are, that you're guaranteed. Um, and then, uh, and then after that, it, it, it really depends on the, on the, where you're going. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't seen the morning show, but I've worked on a number of shows like this that have TV control rooms in them. And usually they will uh, be laid out fairly uh, uh, similar to a regular control room, although it's much simpler. There'll be a less number of monitors. There'll be less number of control stations. And sometimes they'll put an audio person in the same room with the video switcher, which is almost never happens. They're always in a separate room. Uh, but uh, usually they're using watch out to control what's being played on. They can synchronize everything because, you know, for continuity's sake, if you're doing a scene that's taking place in the control room, uh, all the stuff on the monitors behind the people has to uh, stay in sync for continuity. So when you cut from one person and there's a picture of a truck driving or something on the background and you cut back and you cut back to them and, 
you know, that same truck has to be basically at the same point in its action uh, when you cut back to it. So it's kind of problematic. It's fairly difficult to do unless you just blow it off and, and you count on the fact that the background video is cutting a lot so that you won't notice that the images have changed uh, from shot to shot as you cut across from wide shot to close up, etc. So it's kind of kind of tricky to do if you're not using multiple cameras to shoot with. Next question. From uh, Sharif in Oman, Muscat. In the context of live stream production, what is the most effective method to broadcast live on the, on the Twitter platform? So to broadcast live on Twitter platform is pretty complicated. Twitter spaces is easy. Uh, you need to have a media producer um, approval on Twitter to actually stream to Twitter. So it's not an automatic thing that you can do. So you have, what you have to do is go into their Twitter media and somewhere in their website, it's hidden there. And you have to request being a media producer to get that done. So, and it, sometimes you'll get it, sometimes you don't. You really have to kind of have a good reason for it. Twitter doesn't leave this wide open. Um, once you have that, it's relatively simple. You're, you're going to um, stream, you, you, you build a key, it's an RTMP input. Um, it's not the most stable platform to, to stream to, <laughs> but, uh, and it's really, really sensitive to little things like GOP, um, you know, so it wants 90 frame GOPs instead of 60 frame GOPs. And if you give it 60, it's going to do all kinds of things that, that aren't happy. So it's not like you can take your YouTube settings and translate them over. You have to look very, very carefully at Twitter's. Um, they'll, it has a breakdown when you open it up of exactly what it wants to see. And you should do exactly what it asks because it has no flexibility. Like there's no elasticity. I don't, I don't, I don't think they've really developed it. A little bit of the back history for Twitter is that they bought Periscope very quickly before it was even a product. And as a result, it didn't really have time to really harden. And then because it was not fully hardened, when they brought in big partners to stream to Twitter, they used MLBAM, um, which is uh, MLB uh, you know, um, uh, kind of spinoff to, to sort out, to, to support others. And uh, yeah, so, so that, that was a, um, uh, so then when MLBAM was pulled back into Disney, then they lost that and now they're back to Periscope and they, they've kind of closed that down a little bit. So it's not something that happens very often. Maybe they'll develop it further with um, Mr. Musk uh, managing it because he seems to like to do the live streams to there. So we might see more of that in the future. Um, but uh, right now it's been a little bit hit and miss. Um, next question. Next question comes from uh, Maxfield Hunt in San Francisco. Will there be any office hours coverage and or in-person presence at Zoomtopia this year, which is October 3rd and 4th? I hear Mr. Cochran and Mr. Brady and a host of other office hours luminaries will be on the ground. Good, Courtney. Well, that's interesting. I've never been to Zoomtopia or watched it. Do they have exhibitors in an exhibit hall? They or do. Or is it just a series of presentations? They do. I think that while we like to use... Um, well, we like to use a lot of this uh, as a, um, uh, you know, well, for us, um, you know, while we like to use a lot of very specific things in Zoom, my impression looking at the expo is that a lot of it's a lot of corporate solutions that we wouldn't, our, our audience wouldn't necessarily lock onto. So that's why we haven't really built a, a presence there before. We'll see what they have to release. Maybe we should, maybe we're going to miss the boat on it, but, um, but also we, we can usually get folks from Zoom themselves uh, to, and, and even 
any of their partners that are in our vertical usually will come talk to us directly. <laughs> so we don't have to go to the, we go to the other expos because we, we, we would have, you know, we don't know anybody there. Um, but usually if they're doing video and they're doing or audio for Zoom or they're Zoom themselves, uh, we have so much access that it doesn't make as much sense for us to, to do that. And between all the other coverage that we're doing, we're getting ready for NAB. Uh, we just did IBC. I think it was just, it fell between those and makes it harder for us to, 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 expend that much those many that resource every every time um i know that i think a couple of us will try to get together but we'll see how that goes um, next question next one comes in from uh, robert uh sabah <laughs> there from poland any recommendations for an automatic microphone mixer that can be daisy chained for a larger number of microphones to use in a conference room yeah go ahead uh, courtney uh, well, I think the Dan Dugan Automix uh, can be daisy-chained if you have one or two of those units with eight inputs. You can daisy-chain two of the eight inputs together so that they uh, vote on who's speaking and they control each other back and forth so that you can add multiples of eight, I think. Uh, maybe you know better than I do, Alex. It's been a while since I bought the Dan Dugans. Also, Sure makes some auto mixers, and they're small mixers that have four input or eight input mixers that you can buy four at a time, and you can daisy-chain those together to their auto mix. I don't know if they still make them. That was back from the time that, uh, you know, the guys from Sound Devices worked at Shure. Yeah, the uh, so Dan Dugan makes one. He, his, he's got a normal one that's like eight analog that you can go in and out of, but he has a Dante version. So Dan Dugan has a Dante auto mixer that will do up to 64 channels. Um, and uh, the funny thing, and it'll just auto mix the 64 channels and you can break them into groups. So you can make it 12 or 18 or whatever. You could have two rooms getting 18 each or whatever that is. And I asked Dan, I, I was like, because it's the same price as the analog one that does 30, that does eight, eight channels. And I asked Dan, I was like, so why why are you not charging more for the one that does 64 channels? And he's like, doesn't cost any more to make. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so great. So anyway, we got to get Dan on the show. I'll, 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 I'll see if I can bring him on. He's, he's really a great guy. Anyway, uh, but look at the 64 channel. I think it's 64. It could be 32, but I'm pretty sure it's 64 channels. 64 channels of of uh, of Dugan auto mixing in, um, and it's a it's a, its own thing. It's a couple, you know, it's five or six thousand dollars, but it will do what you need it to do. I think. Next question. From Ronnie Hofsey and Tromsen, Norway, any new products launched at IBC that has not already been discussed? I think the ones we've, I think the ones we were interested in, we talked about. We, uh, we had uh, last Thursday. If you if you look at last Thursday, you'll you'll see the discussion there. So, um, yeah. Uh, next question. From uh, Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. Whilst on vacation, I may have missed some Zoom announcements. Any comments or views on Zoom clips, notes, and team chat? Now, could this be integrated? How could this be integrated into a production? You know, I think that the Zoom clips is really interesting in the sense that it makes it easier for corporate clients to do a quick record and send it to people. So I think that that, that made sense there. Uh, I have, I'm, haven't been using notes, and team chat, I think, is their kind of um slack thing uh, i have to admit that i i have really um not used very many things in zoom other than the zoom client itself um and i and i admit that <laughs> if i feel like things aren't going fast enough in the zoom client there's a little bit of passive aggressiveness of i just want them to focus on video so i, I won't use any of the other products so um so the uh so i i've been kind of will, willfully <laughs> not paying attention to anything else zoom does other than uh video uh, next question 
from C.J. Covell in uh, central Pennsylvania. Follow-up to his LUT question. What are the pros and cons of the different LUT output formats in Resolve? 17, 33, or 65-point? And the Panasonic VLUT. Yeah, so I don't, I'm not familiar with the, the VLUT, um, so I don't really use that. The one that is the most common is the 33 point for live. Uh, now, 60 with all of these, these are this is resolution. It's it's how many points of of control do you have? As you increase the resolution, you're going to have um, less guesswork and and less interpolation between those control points. Remember that you have millions or billions of control of colors that you're working with, and you only have 17 control points to pull them around. And then there's interpolation between those inter and and that, you know, whether it's tetrahedral or, or linear or bicubic or all these other things that are going on between those control points, you're leaving some of that up to, to guesswork. And so you have more control as you add more. So if you're going to do something for post, you may want to think about the 65 uh, point um, cube. Live is generally 33 point cubes um, because it's harder to process because there's more more control points there. And uh, 17, I don't, I don't know anybody who uses 17. <laughs> so so it's, 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 it's pretty crude. Um, and I think it was what we first came out with and, and people came, first came out with. So I would, if you're thinking about using it in a live environment, I'd probably look at 33. If you're looking at doing it in a post environment, I do 65. If you ever think you're going to use it in, in a, a live environment, stick with uh, 33 points and then um, the next step up from there, if you go back and look at some of the stuff we had from the um, from our uh, our experts, um, our our football experts, um, you'll see that there is also just a pure one to one connection rather than a lot that they're working on, uh, which is pretty exciting, but still early days. Um, next question. <sighs> Comes in from Ronnie Hofsey in uh, Tromsø, Norway. How much do the rules for checked-in luggage size and weight differ between different airlines in different regions and continents? Good, Nigel. So they differ by airline, by class, by plane, by route, by the mood of the person you're checking in with. And all of those things can affect. Uh, you'll find that mostly, and by the way, it also depends whether they use pounds or kilograms. So mostly it's about 50 pounds, about 23 kilograms. But again, uh, for instance, on British Airways, if you go business class, it's 70. So uh, I would I put a link in the, in the chat to the latest version I could find of all the variations by airline, by class, by all those sorts of things. But don't forget, there's also a route one, which if you're going on a much smaller plane, that will change it as well. Recording. Yeah, they they try and standardize the rules. They what they don't standardize is how they charge you for them. But the weight restrictions and what you can carry in your luggage, you know, there's a there's an organization, the International Air Transport Association, and you can find their website where they'll have passenger baggage rules, uh, which show you the weight limitations uh, for carry on baggage and, uh, and the size limitations for carry on baggage with most airplanes. Of course, it varies by plane because some. Smaller planes don't have overhead compartments that are standard-sized. So check with your individual airline, because in every individual airline will have baggage rules before you fly. Check with that airline. And the difficulty in that is sometimes you'll have connecting flights that are on different airlines. So make sure you, you check all the connecting flights to make sure that you don't be able to check a bag and then get it to uh, the second airline at the second leg of your trip and find out that they won't take your bag. So... Yeah, make sure you, you check it from end to end. 
if you're doing production, never fly Lufthansa. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Like they just, they're so they're so difficult. <laughs> like I, I every time I've flown Lufthansa, I've just been like, oh, I can't believe I did this again. You know, like and and it's because they'll sit there and weigh your carry on bags. You know, on the way in, they little cheapskates. And so, um, so the uh, you know, I I it's it's super annoying. Um, you know, and so uh, you learn to le- avoid certain airlines in certain countries when you can. So, for instance, um, I will never connect through. Uh, I'll never connect through Britain or Australia because um, if I if I can avoid it at, at any almost any cost because their unions are set up where they won't even they won't even process a bag over seventy pounds. So that you know, if, in the United States and most other countries, you can pay extra and get up to a hundred pounds, and they put a sticker on it, and two people have to pick it up, and blah blah blah. And they won't do that in 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 Australia or or in London they'll, or, or in um, Britain. They'll just leave it and say you can't move this through. And so as a result, um, uh, we we learn to not not use those as connecting hubs. Um, the again, we've learned to avoid Lufthansa. Um, um, there's other ones that are, you know, a little bit more flexible. We use Turkish Air a lot because it, it's there. They just are very flexible about how they manage your bags. Um, and also the, the gold lounge in, in Istanbul is amazing anyway. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, so, but you, it is different generally in the United States. It's just by size. You can put a piece of lead in there. And it, as long as it fits into nine by 14 by 22, you're going to be able to put it into the overhead they will try to take your bags on the way through. So they'll, um, they'll, when you go on a little puddle jumper, I just did this to Arizona, they'll try to take your bag. But if you're in the, in the top, one of the top three uh, classes, if you're obstinate, you can usually take it in as long as just to make sure that you really, I, I carry a bag that is exactly seven by four. It's like, it's an away carry on and it's exactly seven by 14 by 22. And I know that, other than one plane flying to like Myrtle Beach or something, it's fit into the overhead. I know it'll just barely fit in. It'll slide right in and it'll just, it'll, it'll be like part of the plane when you, when you slide it in. But, but those planes were built for that bag. Um, in the, in Europe, it's a little shorter. Um, so it's a uh, 19 inch. So it's seven by 14 by 19 um, in, in Europe. So you'll see European class carry-ons that are a little bit shorter than that. And you can get caught up in that if you take a carry-on from the United States. Um, the the thing to note is don't take don't try to use in Europe don't take Pelican cases as your carry on, and because they assume that it's heavy and that's when they start to weigh it and do all kinds of other things, and so the away bag is super light, uh, especially if we take the battery out of it, and it is uh, and it's a great uh, it it doesn't look like something and so then you, know, you can get away with it. The other thing to know is that I always travel with Scotty vests because a Scotty vest can carry forty pounds within all the pockets. <laughs> so, so you, they weigh it and, uh, and you, uh, if you see that coming and you, and you keep, I happen to keep a, a small uh, bag weigh, you know, weighing thing. You can get this little thing. It's a little handle and you hook it to your bag and you pick it up and it'll tell you how much it weighs. And, uh, to get through Lufthansa, what I learned to do is take everything out and put it in my, in my jacket. Cause a jacket is not a bag. It's a jacket. And you put 20, 30 pounds into your jacket and then you get on the plane and you put the 20 or 30 pounds back into the bag and you put it in the overhead. <laughs> so I don't do it as much. I'll, I'll tell you all my secrets now because I don't do very much traveling anymore. But, but I was, that was one of our ways to get kind of around a lot of those things. Um, the other thing we would do is go to a, uh, when you have to check your bags, um, would be to have the bag. We, we would do this thing where we'd kind of have go with two people and and with the carry-ons if they were going to check them, and you kind of go back and forth. And you can, if especially if you're moving your bag from one place to the other, you can adjust it on the way through. Um, next question. 
Next one comes in from Eddie, just Eddie in Toronto. How can I send a two 1080p videos over one SDI cable? So there's a couple different ways to do this. Um, you can technically send up to four of those across that without too much work by using a quad split. So this is an, it's built for UHD. So UHD, there's two different ways of, of carrying, well, there's three ways of carrying UHD. One is 12G, which is just a straight, it's just encoded as four as 4K. The second is 2SI, which is a horrible format. No one should ever use it. And then the third one is, um, it's just the one that we kind of, it was kind of a hack um, that was horrible. Um, and then there's quad. Quad split is, so I I prefer either a, a 12G signal or a quad signal to go out. The advantage of the quad signal is, is that you have, you, you'll take your, you, you've basically split your UHD into four signals and then it gets, and then it gets, um, and then they can go all the way out, but you can get something that'll encode those onto a single piece of fiber or a single piece of SDI. And then it, so it's a quad to, to 12G converter. And on the other side, you get a 12G to quad converter. That gives you or 1080p signals that are passed in sync with each other because they're, they're they think that they're an HD sig a UHD signal, and they pop out. And if you one through four, you could just put they can be four separate 1080p signals. And on the other side, they're 1080p signals on the way out. So that's the easiest way to do that. Um, you know, to to keep them in sync and to move up to four channels across that is. A, 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 you know, it's a it's a quad to 12G converter and then a 12G to quad converter. And that's going to that's gonna do that for you um, relatively seamlessly. The more complicated way to start doing 1080p signals or what we, the other thing you can research is what's called ASI. And you can pump, pump lots of channels onto an SDI signal and it will pass through routers and everything else. And you, I think the most we've, I've ever put on an ASI signal is probably eight signals. Um, and so that you can just bind them up. You're, you are compressing those signals and you need an ASI on both ends. But that's another way to kind of pack pack channels onto that. Go ahead, Courtney. And during the three D craze of video, wasn't there a uh, multiplexer that that uh, put two ten eighty p images on a single SDI that interleaved them? So uh, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye, and then it would demultiplex it on the other end, yep. uh, so that you could put two. Uh, 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 it was a basically three D transport uh, back when we were doing a lot of three D single cable yeah you can multiplex it and go in between the you know you, you can build a cadence in between those frames especially if you're doing because a lot of that 3d stuff was done in 24p and so as long as it sits under 60 you can build a multiplexer that's going to use it and basically it's throwing black frames in there as well that it just has to you just have to have timed because it's, you know 24 is 48 you know and inside of a there's no four the, when you send it out, you have to put the cadence into that system to make that actually work, but you can't pull it off. Um, and so, uh, and it would just put every other frame and plus a third that was, or half of a third frame that was um, black um, or a repeat one or the other. And you just had to make sure that the, the multiplexers worked correctly. Um, but I found that for 1080p, it's much easier to do what I did with this quad, which we've done some stereo stuff with for 1080p stuff. But um, but if you're doing 4K, then then that gets a little bit more complicated. Um, next question. Next one comes in from uh, Eric Herz in Hartford, Connecticut. Google now requires AV1 decoding for all Android devices. How soon before AV1 decoding reaches 75% of all mobile devices? And here's a link. Two years. <laughs> so I think in two years, uh, you know, both Google and the, the, this is one place where Google and Apple agree is that AV1 is important. I would expect, um, I, I don't believe that, did they, did they put a decoder onto the phone? I know that they put, 
um, I think they put a decoder, an AV1 decoder onto the new iPhone. So, so that means all the new iPhones coming out have AV1 decode. Um, the, you know, Google's going to be putting AV1 on it. I think in two years, you'll see a very large percentage of the mobile market able to very effectively um, decode AV1. And that's going to make a huge difference for people who are supplying. It's going to make that, unfortunately, I think that what's going to happen is, is that um, streamers are going to just lower the bandwidth that they're using as opposed to using the same bandwidth and getting much higher quality. So we'll, we'll see how that turns out. All right. Well, it was a good Saturday morning. By the way, if you watched it, I, if you watch the early part, you'll notice that it looked really dark. I think I, I made some adjustments during the show. Um, so go back and watch it a little bit. Um, you may see that that we got it was a little stark and a little dark at the very beginning. Um, just as some as a as kind of um, some show notes here. Let me see if I can pull up the uh, controller. Uh, let's see. I'm going to just show you what this is. What the back end looks like here. Um, so here is the here's what I'm grabbing onto, and we we're going to have a web controller do this um, as we as we go through it here. But um, the uh, you'll see that um, we are there's our I did some ambient um, effect here as well as master lift, and that that's what made it less, look a little less stark. Um, and then also a little bit of, uh, a little bit of exposure. I pulled the exposure back a little bit. Now we're going to start doing this for each person, but right now we're just kind of figuring out overall what it, you know, what it needs to look like. So, um, those are the, that, that gives you a little bit of a sense of, of what we're doing to it. And I think that I, I'm looking at it both in HDR and SDR, and I think that it, it actually looks, um, it looks pretty good. So, uh, so anyway, um, I think that, uh, yeah. Uh, that is, uh, that's what we're working on right now. So um, we'll be doing this every Saturday, uh, HDR and uh, uh, SDR, but I think that we're getting pretty close. You are going to see some breakup. We're, we're seeing that with the UHD link, and we're going to do some research on that. Had a couple notes about that. So you see there's a little bit of breakup in there, but I think it's starting to look pretty good um, as, it, as, it, as we go forward. So stay tuned for more of that. Uh, thank you to the uh, producers for all the great questions. And thank you to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible team. It's not only working on just getting the show done, but now doing an HDR and and um, and uh, then cutting the show and putting those together. And so it's pretty fun. <laughs> We're definitely getting to a point where that it was, I, I do think, by the way, this is in 4K too. So I'd love to get feedback on Sunday. Let us know. Or on Monday, let us know what it looks like on, on a 4K signal. But it's... It, I don't have a face that's ready for 4K. You didn't tell us that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, is you should... (laughs) What's interesting is I think it actually looks sharper even in 1080p because it's even though we're getting scaled up, it actually looks sharper. I think that the scaling in the FSHDR is actually pretty good. The um, I will say that the the super sources and the graphics are holding up really well. So that all looks really good. So I think that we're, we're on a path. All right. Um, we traveled, wait for it, uh, we traveled um, 130,000 miles, 209,000 kilometers, and that is 1.031 billion. Rabbit. Bananas for scale. <laughs> All right, let's go into after hours. Yes. We had questions coming in from Trinidad where they make those bananas. Yes. <laughs> Do they make them or do they grow them? Oh, well, I wonder what it would be like to have a banana factory. I, I make I make bananas. They have lots of daiquiris at the bar, though.
Are our YouTube videos in 4K on Saturday? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jawohl.